I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Book of 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 325. One of the consistent themes that runs throughout the Bible is that God's promises don't always come to pass in ways that we or the people in the story would have expected. One of the best examples of this is uh, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis where God uh, promises Joseph that his brothers are going to bow before him. And so, of course, Joseph does what any brother would do. He goes and he tells his brothers what God promised him would happen in a dream. You're going to bow down before me. And... Uh, Joseph's brothers responded in a not too unexpected way. They were not as thrilled about the dream Joseph had had as Joseph was. And so instead of bowing before him, Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. And that act of jealous hatred led Joseph into a path of suffering that lasted years and years and years. Now, I don't know if during that time, if Joseph might have wondered if God had made some mistake. But in a strange and winding set of events, Joseph's suffering led him to a position where he could be used by God to save many people from death. During a time of famine, Joseph's own brothers had to come and ask him for food. And when they came and asked him for food, they bowed before him just as God had promised Joseph would happen. That promise came about in a very unexpected way, in a way that was not direct, but that was long and winding and roundabout. And when Joseph's brothers came to bow before him, we might expect him to be filled in that moment with bitterness or resentment. Instead, he was filled with love and compassion for his brothers. Why? That's the question that I want us to get at this morning is why? Because he knew that God had been faithful to keep his promise. Because as painful as those years had been and as confusing as he had been when he was in that prison or in that various, all those various places, this long and winding road had led to this moment where God's promise was fulfilled and God had been faithful to it. And so in that moment, Joseph expressed a profound definition of divine providence when he said to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Now, we're going to think about that phrase a few times today. You meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph does not say, you did something evil, and then later God turned that around for good. He says that in the same action, there were two different intentions. The brothers had a sinful intention. They wanted to harm Joseph. But God had a good intention to bring good, not only to Joseph, but to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, including Joseph's own brothers, the very ones who did the sinful thing. And so God permitted their sin against a righteous man and caused it to turn back on them and on the world in salvation. That theme is at the heart of the gospel. God permits sinful men to 
act sinfully against a righteous man, and God intends that sinful act to bring about the salvation of many people. That truth of God's providence and His uh, gracious and powerful permission is on display in our text this morning as well. And so let's read together 2 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, and he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. We're going to pause there, and let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful um, for how you've spoken. And uh, at the same time, we confess this morning uh, our need for your help. Lord, there are lots of names here. Lots of confusing circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give us grace this morning to cut through 
all of that and to be able to find in here uh, some truths about who you are and what kind of God you are and the kind of promises you've made and how it is that you bring those promises about. So, so Lord, I pray that you would help us today by your spirit, God, um, that you would speak through your word and that we would be ready to hear and to obey. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, these first few chapters of 2 Samuel can be really confusing, as I alluded to in my prayer. I was struck by it again as I was reading through the text again about all the different names and all of the confusing circumstances. There's a lot of turmoil within Israel. And so first things first this morning, I want us to... I want to help us sort out who is who. Now, we're not going to get into, okay, well, who is, who is Ahinoam of Jezreel and Kiliab and uh, uh, who is Hagith and Shephatai and all these different people? What I'm going to do is I'm going to just try to tell you, okay, here are the names of the people you really need to remember. These are the ones you need to know and, and you know, who they are and where they fall and that sort of thing. So for our purposes this morning, one of the main things you need to remember is that there are, at this moment in history, there are essentially two rival kingdoms with two rival kings. And each of those kings has his own commander. Now, I'm a visual person, so when I am trying to wrap my mind around this, a lot of times I will write this down, draw something out, and so I, I made an attempt to help us with that this morning. So, first, before his death, Saul was the king of uh, all the 12 tribes of Israel. And Saul was a pretty prominent figure in 1 Samuel, and he died at the end of 1 Samuel. And the reason why there is such turmoil at the beginning of 2 Samuel is because of the aftermath of Saul's death and how things play out there. Now, after Saul died, the tribe of Judah, which David was a part of, anointed David as their king, while the other 11 tribes recognized as their king Ishbosheth, who was one of Saul's sons. So right now, Saul's dead. David is the one who is in the eyes of the Lord, he is the king. But Ishbosheth is in the eyes of the 11 other 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel, he is king. Now on David's side, he has a commander named Joab. On Ishbosheth's side, he has a commander named Abner. So those are the names that you kind of need to keep straight. And things are going to get confusing because people are going to start switching sides and things like that. But I'll try to keep that straight for us as we go along today. Now, <clears throat> while it is easy, especially when you're reading through this and you're not quite sure, okay, whose name should I pay attention to, who should I remember and not, this is clear. Another thing that's clear is uh, verse 1, where the author says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It's not surprising. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So David's kingdom, David's house is on the rise. Saul's kingdom, Saul's house represented in Ishbosheth and Abner is on the decline. And this, what verse 1 describes for us is happening, this is precisely what God said would happen. He promised 
Saul all the way back in 1 Samuel 15 that because of Saul's repeated failures and his unrepentance that God was going to rip the kingdom from him and give it to a man who was worthy. And so this is what God said would happen. David is the Lord's anointed one. And God is keeping His promises to him, even if He's doing it in ways we would not expect. I mean, think about the fact that God has said, David is the king. And yet, at this moment in time, he is only the king over a tiny portion of the kingdom. So there's still a whole lot of promise that has to be fulfilled. While there are lots of twists and turns, however, the story is moving toward that outcome. God's promise will come to pass even as we walk with these people through the fulfillment of it. It doesn't sometimes look like it's coming to pass, but it will. And so here's how I want to summarize um, the big idea. I, I tried to say, okay, how can we take all of this confusion and boil it down into a way that we might can see, A, how it uh, demonstrates a shadow or a whisper of the gospel for us, and then how we might apply it to our lives. And so here's the big idea for our purposes this morning. God permits sinful men to advance His perfect will. God permits sinful men to advance His perfect will. So verse 1 says that God's will is being advanced. David is growing stronger and stronger. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. And what I want us to see here in chapter 3 is that God does not wait around until He finds perfectly righteous people who can carry out that will. But He takes people who are sinful... He permits them to do the very things they want to do, the very sinful actions they want to do, and yet God intends those sinful actions to advance His perfect will. We're going to see God do that in three men in particular. So God permits sinful men. We're going to look at three sinful men that God permits to advance His perfect will. David, Abner, and then Joab. So first is David. Now, let me just say, you know, right out of the gate here, this might be a surprise because we're, we've been somehow conditioned to read, especially the Old Testament, with this mindset of, well, David is the good guy. And somebody else must be the bad guy, Goliath or Abner or Saul or fill in the blank. It's never as clear cut as that. David is the Lord's anointed. He is the chosen king. He is God's man. He's a man after God's own heart, which means a man of God's own choosing. But that does not mean that David is perfect. And for some time, there has been this lingering question about David. And it bubbles up to the surface here in verses 2 through 5. We're told about the sons that were born to David at Hebron. And you don't need a seminary degree or a study Bible or a preacher to stand up here and tell you that something fishy is going on here, right? Because he has six sons who are all born in Hebron. But I see um, more than one mama here, right? So there's, there's something going on here. He has six sons, all born to six different wives while he is in Hebron. 
And some modern readers read that and they say, wait a minute, how is that okay? You even hear some people say occasionally, you know, how can you, they wag your fingers, how can you Christians believe the Bible when it has polygamy in there? Well, friend, that's just not how you're supposed to read this book, okay? So let me give you one of the most helpful, um, one of the most helpful tools you can have, especially when you're reading an Old Testament narrative, a story like this. So, let's imagine you're sick and you go to the doctor. That's been happening to a lot of people lately. So you go to the doctor, you're sitting in the waiting room, and while you're sitting in the waiting room, you pick up a newspaper. Doctor's offices tend to have newspapers and magazines. And so you pick up a newspaper and you start reading in it descriptions of all kinds of unsavory things that people have been doing that week. A politician in Montgomery has been convicted of corruption. Probably any week you could pick up a newspaper and read that. A group of teenagers have been breaking into people's homes in this local community. And so on. So you read all this, this. This person got a DUI. This person wrote a bad check. All this kind of stuff. It's all in the newspaper. Then the nurse comes out. She calls your name. You put your newspaper down. You go back. You talk to the doctor. He examines you, asks you a bunch of questions. And then at the end of that visit, he writes you a prescription. The prescription tells you what to do. Right? The prescription says, take this medicine twice a day for 10 days, or whatever the, med whatever the prescription says. You take that and you obey it. One of the most common mistakes people make when they read the Old Testament is they confuse description with prescription. They read the Old Testament like a doctor's prescription note when they should be reading it like a newspaper. This is not telling us, okay, David was a polygamist and so you should be too. No, this is simply telling us what happened, just like a newspaper does. The editors of the newspaper are not commending those actions to you. They're not saying, hey, it worked for that politician in Montgomery. Why don't you try it? You might can make a few bucks. Hey, people, they broke into people's homes and they got some TVs. That's the best way to get a cheap TV right there, break into somebody's house. They're simply describing for you this is what happened this week. That's, what, that's what's happening in the Old Testament. You, you cannot read the Old Testament like a prescription. Now, there are some prescriptions in it. You shall not murder. That's a prescription, right? There's ten of those and lots of others. But not everything in here is prescriptions. There's a big difference. God is not always commending behavior to us. He may simply be describing it for us. So when you read that David had six wives, the author's not commending that behavior to us. In fact, the text is showing us that David is not the ideal king. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, God gave His people a prescription for what the king should be. And in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said, "...the king, he, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away." That's a prescription for the king. And so when you read David taking first two wives and then now he has six wives and we're going to find some more come along the way, well, you say, okay, David is not obeying the prescription that God gave him. By having more than one wife, he is breaking an express command of Scripture. It's enough to make you wonder, why would David disobey something so obvious? 
the reason that question comes to my mind is because David seems in some other areas to be so careful. We're going to see him do that later on in this chapter, where he's going to be so very careful, not only that he would not break a command, but also that he would make it clear to everybody else that I didn't break that command. He's being above reproach. So why is it in this area that he seems to fail so badly? Well, you say, I mean, maybe, um, maybe he's just ignorant of the command. I don't find that likely. The author gives us a strong hint. The author doesn't really say, here's why David had so many wives. But there's, there's some hints here, okay? Look again at the middle of verse 3, for example. Verse 3, And his second son, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal and of Carmel. And then notice, the middle of verse 3, And the third son, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Now, that's one of those where you may read that and you say, I don't know what any of that means except he had a third son. But it's weird, right? Even as you're reading it, a lot of these women were told where they're from. We know that Ahinoam is from Jezreel. We know that Abigail is from Carmel, that she's the widow of Nabal. We know that uh, we don't know anything about Hagith. We don't know anything about Abital. But this, this lady, this wife, Ma'akah, we know that she's the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Now, again, I'm a visual person. And so I'm going to give you a visual here. This is, not a, uh, this is not a professional map. This is not to scale. But this is just a general outline of how the geography works here. Okay? So go easy on me. Uh, I'm not an artist. David's territory, Judah, is um, to the south of Ishbosheth's territory, the other 11 tribes. So Ishbosheth has territory to the north and kind of to the east of David. And then Geshur, which I don't expect you to know where it is, but I'm telling you, it was to the north of Ishbosheth's territory. So, question for all of you, you know, military scholars out there. Why would, why would marrying the daughter of the king of Geshur be advantageous for David? Well, because it's a convenient alliance, right? Because if Ishbosheth gets in his mind, I'm going to go down there and attack David, well, he's going to be attacking the daughter and the grandson of the king of Geshur. And so suddenly, if Ishbosheth tries to attack David, he's going to have to fight a battle on two different fronts. And so this is like an insurance policy. We're not told if, if David and Ma'akah, if there was any love there. I don't know. Maybe some lust. I don't know. But there is certainly some strategy to this. There's some convenience to it. So it's a, it's a shrewd strategic move on David's part. And again, if you're looking at it just as a piece of military history, you say, wow, what a strategist David was. But if you're looking at this and saying, okay, the, the most important thing David is supposed to do and be is faithful to the commands of God, well, then this is a failure. And that failure, when you kind of see that, then it sort of casts a grimy film over what happens later in the chapter between David and Michael, Saul's daughter. Look down at, with me at verse 13. 
This is when Abner has decided to make a covenant with David. Verse 13 says, And he, that is David, said to Abner, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that you shall not uh, see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, in case you don't remember the, the history here, let me recap quickly. Michael was David's first wife. They were separated because Michael's father Saul kept trying to kill David. Uh, in fact, Michael helped David escape. And in the intervening years, we haven't been told anything about her except we now see that apparently she has been remarried. Uh, by the way, so has David a few times. Um, but now David wants her back. And this is a very morally ambiguous thing here. But I want you to look at her husband. It is difficult not to sympathize with him. Look at verse 15. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. A long time has passed since David and Michael were separated and this point now. So I don't know how long she and um, Paul Tiel had been married. I don't know if they had children. Um, but this is, there's something wrong about this, right? This is morally a very murky situation. But based on what we've seen earlier in the chapter, it's, it's difficult to assume that David's motives are pure. Even if he is genuinely motivated here by love for Michael, well, that still doesn't change the fact that he has six other wives. On top of that, having Saul's daughter as one of his seven wives may very well help his cause of uniting his house and the house of Saul. Remember, that's the problem right now is that the house of David and the house of Saul are divided. And so if you were David and you're scheming, how could I bring unity? Well, one way you could do that is by marrying Saul's daughter and having little you know, grandchildren of Saul that are running around in David's house. So um, David is acting here at the expense of Paltiel's sorrow and also at the expense of his own faithfulness to the Lord's commands. And by the way, just kind of glancing ahead, there is a much bigger moral failure on the horizon for David, but this is one of many warning signs anticipating the danger ahead. So, of course, David is not the only one who acts sinfully. God permits his sinful actions to advance his perfect will. And next we see God do that with Abner. I want you to glance back with me at chapter 2, verse 8. This was, so glance back one chapter, chapter 2, verse 8. This is when Ishbosheth was installed as a rival king to David. <clears throat> Notice what chapter 2, verse 8 says. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, pay attention here to the verbs. Abner took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Now, Ishbosheth is technically the leader of Saul's house, but who actually has the power? Not Ishbosheth. 
Abner does. Ishbosheth is a convenient figurehead. Abner is really the one pulling the strings. That becomes all the more obvious in chapter 3. Notice chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Saul's house is on the decline. It's like a sinking ship, but Abner is doing everything he can to place himself within that declining house uh, in such a way that his own profile is going to get raised. The author gives us an example of what he does in verse 7. He says, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, this is one of those things where, again, as you're reading it, you, it's easy to just kind of glance over it, but think of this as a, as a power move. Abner, for him to take one of the deceased king's concubines would have been perceived by everyone as a play for the throne. He's, he's literally trying to take the place of Saul here. That's why Ishbosheth gets so up in arms about it. Why have you done this? And notice how Abner responds to him in verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. And sure enough, um, Ishbosheth is going to sort of tuck his tail here, isn't he? So Abner's the one who is in authority. He is beside himself that Ishbosheth would question his actions. In fact, he feels that Ishbosheth owes him a debt of gratitude, seeing as how I have not given you into the hand of David, implying that's something I could have done all along. The only reason you're in your position, Ishbosheth, is because of my mercy. And yet, Ishbosheth is the king, at least presumably. It's in the next two verses that Abner's character really comes through. Look at verse 9. This is still Abner speaking. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. You, you find out a few verses later when he goes and speaks to the elders of Israel that they had all been clamoring to have David as their king. So the, this, this whole fact of... Uh, Colby mentioned it last week in his sermon... This whole fact of David being the Lord's anointed one, it's not like it was a secret anymore. This was apparently public knowledge. David knew it. Abner knew it. Judah knew it. All of Israel knew that David is the one who is supposed to be king. And so these verses demonstrate that Abner has known that all along. And he's known that it is none other than the Lord Himself who has sworn to that effect. And yet this whole time Abner has been trying to thwart the Lord's declared will. He installed Ishbosheth as a rival king. He apparently had been convincing the elders of Israel to, to try to go along with Ishbosheth. He leads those eleven tribes in war against David and the people of Judah. Imagine the number of people who died because of Abner's shameless uh, pursuit of power. But the Lord permits the self-centered intentions of sinful men to advance His perfect will. Even when Abner flips his allegiance to David, it's not because of a change of heart, it's because of a change of strategy. 
okay, Saul's ship is sinking. I better jump ship and see if I can't get in the, in the uh, captain's cabin on the other one. And so the Lord permits sinful men to advance His perfect will. We've seen God do that with David and Abner, and last is Joab. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the second half of chapter 3, um, verses 22 through 39. Joab is, has been unaware of these negotiations between David and Abner, and when he returns and hears of the covenant that they've made, he is upset. Now, Joab claims that he's concerned about Abner deceiving David, right? And he may very well be right. I mean, David does not have any reason to trust Abner. But it's equally likely that Joab is acting in his own self-interest. I mean, imagine if you are Joab, put yourself in his shoes, and here is Abner who's going to be brought into David's administration. The question that you're thinking is, where does that leave me? Because I'm David's commander, and Abner is this other commander, and he's very powerful, and he has had authority over these other 11 tribes. And so it kind of seems like I'm about to be moved to number three. And so Joab takes matters into his own hands. Quite literally, he takes Abner aside and kills him. Now again, he claims that his reason for killing Abner is to avenge his brother's death. Abner had killed Joab's brother in battle after giving him more than one opportunity to retreat. Even if uh, Joab was exacting vengeance for his brother's death, this was unlawful vengeance. Because again, uh, Joab's brother was killed in battle after his enemy had warned him and tried to turn him away. So no matter what Joab's motive is, whether his motive is to, to rid himself of a potential rival or whether his motive is genuinely because he's avenging his brother's death, either way, Joab is wrong and he commits sin. He commits murder here. Although David was far from sinless, the author time and time again maintains his innocence in this one area, in the sin of bloodshed. The author makes clear that David did not know about Joab's plot to murder Abner. In fact, when David learns what happened, he judges Joab for what he has done. And just as David had led the people to mourn Saul's death, he leads the, the nation in a time of mourning for Abner. Notice verse 37. Verse 37 summarizes, So all the people and all Israel, that's important, so it says all the people, that means Judah, and all Israel. So now this is all 12 tribes understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. So here's, here's what has happened. David has sinfully taken many wives to himself. Abner has shamefully pursued power when he backed Ishbosheth, then flipped allegiances to David. Joab has jealously murdered Abner. And in all of this, God was permitting sinful men to advance His perfect will. Nowhere is that truth seen more clearly than at the cross of Jesus. More than at any other time or any other place, it was at the cross that God permitted sinful men to advance His perfect will. Peter says in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was sinful for them to kill Jesus. It was lawless for them to kill Him. But Peter says they did so according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, which means that God was not caught off guard by it, nor did God respond to it or react to it. It's not like God was sitting in heaven saying, oh no, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh no, I hope they don't crucify Him. Oh no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. And then after it happened, he, he had an idea. Oh, now I know how I can turn this event for the salvation of many people all over the world. No, no, no. Peter wants to be very clear. That's not what happened. God had a definite plan. It was going to happen. There was no plan B. There wasn't a contingency because if you're God, you don't need plan B's or C's or D's. You're God and you have a plan and it, it happens. And yet in this strange mystery, He fulfills that definite plan. He carries out that purpose by permitting sinful men who wanted to crucify Jesus, who hated Jesus. He permitted that sin against His righteous Son in order that His plan to bring many sons to glory would come to pass. And so as we try to sort out how we might apply this truth to our lives, we need to admit today that there is a complex mystery here, a, a, a complex interplay between, on the one hand, God's absolute sovereignty. Whatever He pleases... To do, He will do. And on the other hand, absolute human responsibility. That we have the freedom to act in ways that we desire sinfully to act. And God judges us for the sin that we commit. And so on the one hand, in His wisdom and power, God permits human sin to advance His righteous purpose. On the other hand, in His holiness, God still holds humans accountable for their sin. So here are two summarizing thoughts um, that we might tr try to boil this down to in a way that we could apply. Th this, is, this is not one of those sermons where there's necessarily um, an action uh, that you need to take. There, there are, but first there, there are some truths that you need to meditate on and ask the Lord to help you understand. The first is that God is able to bring His Word to pass even as people are disobeying His Word. There's nobody else in the universe who can do that, but God can. He is able to bring His Word to pass even as people are disobeying His Word. Think about it. God says, you shall not murder. And yet, men murdering a righteous man 2,000 years ago is what brings God's Word to pass, that He was going to crush the head of Satan, and that He was going to send a Redeemer who was going to transform the world. So people disobeyed God's Word, and yet at the same time, they brought His Word to pass. Nobody else can do that except God. And that is something that we could ponder and ponder and ponder for the rest of our life and for all of eternity, and we still may not understand it because He's God and we're not. And the second truth is that God is able to bring good ends, 
out of sinful means, but the ends do not justify the means. Now what I mean by that is, our takeaway from this today should not be, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if I sin or if I obey God, because either way, God's will is going to advance, right? It's, it's not so deterministic. It's not so fatalistic like that. Um, the takeaway is not, well, let us go on sinning so that His will may advance. Absolutely not. We should always strive to walk in faith. We should believe that God's promises are coming to pass. And we should strive to obey His commands in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God does not just permit sinful men to advance His perfect will, but He also permits repentant people and faithful people and people who are doing their best to follow Him. He permits those people to advance His will too. And there are some specific aspects of God's will that He intends to fulfill through you, through your obedience, through your faithfulness. So there may be someone who God has determined to bring to salvation, and the way He's going to do that is through you, speaking the gospel to them. There are, there, there are children, some of you who are younger, there are children that God intends to be born and to raise and one day that they would come to faith in you, and who knows what God would do through, through them. And you are the instrument He has in place for that. And so, yes, God permits sinful people against their uh, desires to advance His will, but we should always strive to walk in faith. Just because something good comes out of it does not justify the means. So as we strive to walk in faith as we strive to obey His commands in the power of the Spirit. We do so knowing this is really good news. We know that it is impossible for us to sin so badly that we would somehow derail God's will from being done. You, you can't mess it up. That doesn't mean that you should try, but you, you can't. And no one else can mess it up either. It is impossible for you to sin so badly that you would somehow derail God's will. And it's also impossible for someone to sin against you so grievously that they would derail God's will for you or for the world. His promises will come to pass even if they do so in ways we do not expect. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, um, my whole thought has been, you know, that God permits the He permits sinful men to advance His perfect will. And I was thinking, you know, sometimes we, we often talk about, we did this some in Romans 8 when we were talking about um, God causing all things to work together for good. There are, there are lots of things that happen in the world that seem random, you know, and arbitrary. Like, why did that tornado hit there? Why did that hurricane blow that building over and not that one? Why did this cell mutate and that person got cancer and this one didn't? Or why did, why did this person have this accident and, and not someone else? Or whatever. It just seems random. 
And the point of Romans 8.28 is there's, there's nothing that seems random that could mess up God's will. And so this truth is, is a supplement to that because what this truth has said, and by the way, this includes not just things that seem random and arbitrary, but it includes even the circumstances and even the people and even the actions that seem positively opposed to God's purposes. Even those things are going to advance His will. And so there's good news for us there. There's good news for us. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And again, there's nowhere we see this more clearly than at the cross. We could, we could look all day at the sinful people who, who literally did the act of crucifying Jesus. Peter says, you crucified Him by the hands of lawless men. But as we sometimes sing, it was my sin that held Him there. As Paul says, you once were alienated and hostile to God. And so just as God intended Joseph's brother's sin to work not only for Joseph's good, but to come back on them in salvation, in the same way God intends the sin of everyone who trusts in Jesus and everyone who repents of their sins he intends for that sin to be transferred to, to Christ and for His righteousness to come back on that person in salvation. That's news that we need to hear, and that's news that people in our community and people all over the world need to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy toward people who were hostile to You, not just neutral, but hostile, opposed and Lord, we see how in the story of Joseph and in the story of David and most clearly in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, how you have permitted sinful people to advance your perfect will. And God, I pray that there would be some here today who would be uh, in some way uh, comforted by this truth that you are indeed working out all circumstances, not only the ones that seem arbitrary or random, but the, the ones that seem opposed to your purposes. You're working all those things so that we would be conformed to the likeness of your Son, Jesus. But Holy Spirit, if there's someone here today who, who needs, first of all, to be united to Jesus and to uh, trust in Him and to repent of their sins, I pray that you would convict us and draw us to Him. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.